the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. With me, as always, is not Naughty Oxford, actually. Uh, it is Mike Williams. Hi, Mike. Hello, folks. How are you doing today? Mike Williams is, of course, the host of the US Gamer podcast, the flagship podcast of US Gamer. Nadia came down with some kind of horrible death flu right in time for the holidays. Lucky for her. Yeah, no, it's a pretty bad pretty bad thing she uh was supposed to be on the stream and uh doing acts and she really did try she was out this morning yep. trying to fight the good fight but nah she gave it the old uh nadia try but it just wasn't gonna happen so instead it's gonna be you and me mike and mike and, and that's fine because you have played a lot of rpgs this year and you have some good uh outlooks on a couple of rpgs that i definitely want to be talking about as we as always because this is the final podcast of the year we're going to be talking about the year in rpgs and picking our five best um we will we were going to do a final fantasy 9 report wrap up but not this week because nadia is sick but we'll we'll wrap it up when we start the new year but uh mike what are, what are your thoughts on this year in rpgs uh good bad uh very very good uh this was a solid year for rpgs i i can't i mean we we started off the year with persona 5 which is a pretty damn good opening salvo and we ended the year with xenoblade chronicles 2 so all told, I, this was a pretty great year for RPGs. There, there are even some sort of middling RPGs out there, like uh, we had Tales of Basaria this year. We had uh, Golf Story, which surprised a lot of people on the Nintendo Switch in the middle of the year. So I'd, I'd say it was a good year. It was a great year. I'm not sure what year was probably better than this. Maybe if we got Dragon Quest hmm. this year as well. It feels a little weird because a lot of my favorite RPGs have now come out, or the RPGs that I was anticipating the most. I, I was really, I don't know if I want to say anticipating Final Fantasy XV when it came out last year, but it came out, it's out now, it's in the world. I was really anticipating Persona 5. In fact, if I were to pick one game that I figured would be my prohibitive favorite for Game of the Year, it would have been that one. So it's a little surprising that it's not my game of the year, uh, but it's it's definitely up there. I, I really enjoyed Persona 5. Um, in terms of RPGs, I think that it definitely skews heavily toward the Japanese side this year. We haven't seen, we have not seen any big ones from, big new ones from Bethesda or Bioware who are traditionally heavyweights in this category. Uh, we did get Divinity Original Sin 2. Uh, on the what we got, uh, Mass Effect Andromeda was this year, and unfortunately, that was uh, not a great outing for Bioware. It killed an entire well, not killed, they're still around, but they're not in charge. Yeah, yeah, we should probably spare a word for Mass Effect Andromeda. Oh my gosh, that, that really started just a terrible, terrible, terrible year for EA. Oh, uh, historically bad. Yeah, it, it's almost as if Nintendo took all of the any positivity from ea and just sucked it all up 
because Nintendo had a diametrically opposite year. Everything went right for Nintendo and everything went wrong for EA. It's very, very true, especially because it looked like a big year for EA and just nothing hit. It was Mass Effect, uh, the Star Wars Battlefront 2, loot box controversy, which carry, which seems like it might carry on to UFC 3 into next year. And uh, Need for Speed Payback, just nothing happened there. And they also so killed they just... Visceral. Oh, poor Visceral. Yes. Yeah, no, this wasn't a great year for EA. And they had that maybe poorly timed comments about single-player con- games maybe not working very well and trying to tack Ultimate Team-type mechanics onto a single-player Star Wars game that's supposed to be like Uncharted. Yeah, it didn't go well um, for EA this year. And it really started with Mass Effect Andromeda, which had I, I mean right from the start it comes out into early access and people are looking at the tech problems and going what the heck this game's ugly it's a very yeah. ugly game especially the character it, models yeah and you can overlook some of the ugliness because i'm currently playing another rpg from piranha bites called Alex, which is very much a sort of cheaper side definitely euro jank rpg euro jank like, i like that term Yes, uh, so it's good, but it's weird that Mass Effect is as close to that game as it is, mm-hmm. considering one is from EA's, one of EA's flagship studios built just to make Mass Effect games, and the other is from Piranha Bytes, who've done like Risen and Gothic before. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I think the thing with Mass Effect Andromeda was that it was just the a good case of an a studio that got too ambitious for its own good it tried to it tried to no man's sky it and they discovered that there really wasn't much of a game there and as a consequence uh mass effect andromeda had a lot of tech problems they couldn't really figure out where the direction of the game was supposed to be and then it kind of became this cobbled together mess that didn't really satisfy anybody so uh, and that as a result ended up uh, killing bioware montreal was it and they ended up moving a lot of things over and uh, it it really spoke to a lot of the problems that ea is just kind of having internally with their process i mean the uh the frostbite engine has been a huge problem for them the whole nine yards right so it's it is a shame (laughs) especially jason schreier if you haven't read them before did an entire report on exactly why mass effect andromeda turned out the way it did and the truth of the matter is, is that game development is very hard and EA is not necessarily giving developers the tools that they need to succeed, at least currently. Yeah, but uh, on a happier note, there were a lot of really interesting RPGs that kind of ran the gamut. Uh, it started out relatively strong. And here's one that really flew under the radar. Uh, a lot of people don't pay a ton of attention to the Tales series, but... Tales of Berseria is an RPG that, among the fans of the series at least, uh, ended up being quite popular. Did you get a chance to ever check that one out? I played it briefly, but uh, it was in the middle of a whole bunch of other releases, so I never actually yeah. got a chance to like really dive deep into it, which was the story of a lot of games for me this year. It came out at the same time as Resident Evil 7, which was kind of to its detriment, but... I mean, it's fairly typical. Uh, it's fairly typical for a Tales game, just in the sense that it has that kind of lighthearted, very, very anime look. Um, 
and it's a more of an action kind of system. But a lot of people were really into it and are kind of were kind of saying that it was one of their favorite RPGs of the first half of the year. So it, it, it's not going to find its way into a lot of best of 2017 lists, especially because it came out way back in January. And I think a lot of people have forgotten about it, but it's certainly worth sparing a word for another RPG that came out, which I wasn't as big a fan of, Mike, Fire Emblem Shadows of Valencia for the 3DS. I know that a lot of people ended up liking that one quite a bit. I, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think it is possible for a game to be too retro and too faithful to its roots. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, actually, I never touched it, despite being a Fire Emblem fan, because of your review where you were talking about the fact that it was entirely too faithful to what came before. Because as we sort of move forward in the years, there are certain game design choices that end up being not good like they were fine back in the day but they're not fun now and i read your review and i was like yeah i have no interest in any of this right now (laughs) Uh, a lot of fire emblem fans were coming after me and saying that apparently i did it wrong or that if you follow their 12-step program that you will be able to have him it is a downright easy game what are you talking about Uh, for me it wasn't that it wasn't a matter of it being hard. And this is a problem that I think is a conversation that happens a lot in conversations about difficulty in video games. There is such a thing as good difficulty and bad difficulty. And I think that the difficulty in Fire Emblem Shadows of Valencia is poorly balanced and not that fun. I don't like grinding through waves after wave of continually spawning skeletons and other things. I, I found it pretty, pretty annoying, actually. So... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are there are hard games, definitely hard games. I played uh, Mario uh, Rabbit's Kingdom Battle, which is a very hard game, but it's fun all the way through. Mm-hmm. Like, y- you want to keep playing, not just for, you know, summoning the mountain, but also the game itself is enjoyable. And it just sounded like uh, Shadows of Valencia was just not, it just didn't have it. Yeah, but I, I will say this for it. It was beautiful. It was, a, in, in many respects, a very faithful, gorgeous update of the original game with great music and everything. Definitely sticks to its roots, updates the story in meaningful ways. And, and the story itself, by Fire Emblem standards, pretty good, actually. I, I enjoyed it. And um, I thought that just the different mechanics uh, were kind of a breath of the fresh air uh, from a Fire Emblem standpoint. So if you... If you are a Fire Emblem fan and you have a spare moment and you just want to try something different and, I don't know, you follow the like the strategy guides that you find on the internet, uh, you may find yourself having a good time. And I'm betting that plenty of people uh, will tell me that they really ended up enjoying uh, Fire Emblem Shadows of Valencia. Uh, yeah, yeah. It felt like a stopgap release all told. <laughs> oh, no, it totally was a stopgap release for the Nintendo Switch version, which came out uh, in March, but or which will be coming out, I don't know, not next year, but maybe the year after. Maybe maybe it'll come out next year. We'll see. I w- I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And that's one of those titles that uh, Kat and I are going to have to fight over for <laughs> review choice. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, a game that you wouldn't necessarily consider to be an RPG, and we didn't really talk about that much on this podcast because... I'm sorry, Mike, I didn't really end up enjoying it, but I know this is much more of your jam. Assassin's Creed Origins, which really, really went in kind of a Witcher direction. Yes, it did go in a Witcher direction. And they said in interviews that that was one of the games that they looked towards and they were like, okay, we can improve our storytelling by sort of taking some of these ideas on board. So a lot of the quests are fully voiced now and they actually have context and the whole game adds a new leveling and experience system, which some people didn't like because it sort of hard gates you out of specific areas. Because if enemies are like three levels above you, they are nigh unkillable most of the time, no matter what. Like, you can't do any damage, which is an interesting choice for them. I'm not sure exactly why they went that hard with that level gating. Mm. I, I think it's because they, when you can exercise control over progression, it's a lot easier to design encounters and design specific areas. So the more that they can limit a person, the better. And that's not always the greatest move. It's kind of artificial and annoying, to be perfectly honest. It's one of the reasons that I really respect Breath of the Wild is that they make the exploration feel so incredibly organic. But I, I mean, it is a tactic, right? But I think the difference between, see, Assassin's Creed Origins and kind of a quote-unquote RPG like Middle-Earth Shadow of War. I played a lot of Middle-Earth Shadow of War. I don't know why. It's just not that good a game. But in Middle-Earth Shadow of War, you do have gear that has levels and differing uh, rarity and that kind of thing. But the orcs that you're fighting do not have levels. And also... Uh, they're, I mean, they're not really story kind of side quests. They're, they don't have individual arcs. They're just extra collectible things that you can do. It feels like a more traditional open world game. Whereas Assassin's Creed Origins, you have actual kind of Witcher 3 style side quests where it is telling an art story and there is an arc and the enemies do have levels and it just feels like much more of an RPG all the way around. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, a lot of the stories will start in one area, but if you keep playing and you actually cover all of the side quests, sometimes characters come back and stories are picked up in later different regions. So it's one of those things where I think a lot of people will miss how much work Ubisoft put into the story that's being told in the main game and in the side quests, but I, I think it was a good choice for them overall. Just needs a little tweaking here and there. And Ubisoft probably needs to get slightly better writing, which is one of the things that pushed The Witcher 3 over the top yes. for the year it came out. Yeah, I think Witcher 3's world... Uh, I think both had compelling worlds, but I thought Witcher 3 was just that bit much better than... just better looking than Assassin's Creed Origins. And... I think I prefer fantasy medieval to quote-unquote historical ancient Egypt. Uh, just personal preference, I think. And then I think the writing ultimately put Witcher 3 over the top. Though I would say that Assassin's Creed probably has better combat than Witcher 3. I will agree with that. Although a lot of people missed in Witcher 3 like the nuance of the combat. It wasn't like the, the slashing and dodging was the core of the combat. The core of the combat was figuring out what items you need or what buffs you need mm. to tackle the monster specifically. Uh, and those are different aims. But yeah, Assassin's Creed is more straightforward. Like, 
let's dodge and combat and it it was a good system for the game i i picked up witcher 3 again just last night actually because i wanted to see how it looked in 4k and i can say that it definitely looks better in 4k playing on an xbox one x and and runs really smoothly too i i was actually pretty impressed but I was riding down the road, and I'm like, wow, this is really pretty. And then I immediately ran into a gaggle of bandits who were clearly much stronger than me and died. Died immediately. And I was like, well, yeah, these potions and buffs weren't going to help me here. They're just going to straight up kill me, man. Yeah, and that is one of the things that happen in games with hard levels, and especially as more open-world games start to take RPG uh, progression. Some RPGs can sort of hold you and keep you on a certain track so you don't run into areas like that. But say if Breath of the Wild had hard RPG level gating, you'd probably run into the same thing because there are certain areas like the the Hinoxes or the uh, whatever those big lion things with the centaur bodies. Like if they were in a regular RPG game with levels, I think those would be much harder mm. than what they are, which are just time consuming. A few more notable releases of 2017. Torment Tides of Numenera, which came out from the creator of uh, Bard's Tale, Brian Fargo, and his studio, In Exile Entertainment, which uh, we got, we gave it a fairly good review, though it had some problems at launch. Uh, Cosmic Star Heroine, which was the indie game by Robert Boyd. We had him on the podcast to talk about it. And uh, it's actually pretty rad, and I think it's coming to the Nintendo Switch. Uh, I think the thing that I really like about that is it's really complicated and interesting battle systems. Robert Robert just adores making great battle systems. Uh, and also uh, Final Fantasy XII, The Zodiac Age, which is a really nice upgraded uh, HD remaster of Final Fantasy XII. I mean, Mike, you can attest to this. Sometimes companies aren't able to really do a good HD remaster justice, but this this just hit it out of the park. Yeah, no, it's a great remaster, and it helps that the for the art of Final Fantasy XII was already great. So a lot of the textures and stuff and models they could just carry over, and it was a matter of like anti-aliasing. But they did a lot of work to make the bring the game up to modern standards and added some features that I really enjoyed primarily among those, the speed up so that you could actually play the game in like double time, uh, which is especially which helpful I because did. FF12 has areas where you need to grind and playing that in double speed is really helpful. And honestly, if your RPG has grinding and it's single player, give me the option to play it in double speed, yeah. please. Absolutely. All right, so those were some of the major RPGs that came out in 2017, but we haven't hit on the five best RPGs of 2017. No particular order. We're not going to rank them this year. I'm just going to say here are the five RPGs of 2017 that we think that you need to play. And the first one, and I'm glad that you're here, Mike, because you can talk about it. You can attest to it. Final Fantasy XIV Stormblood which came out, which is the big expansion to Final Fantasy XIV. Yeah, technically it's an expansion. Final Fantasy XIV is its own thing, but really it's its own game, right? Uh, at this point, yeah, it's each expansion sort of has its own specific story to tell. 
and it's pretty lengthy and they do a number of changes. So I feel good calling this its own yeah. game, at least for the purposes of, hey, this is an RPG that you should look out for this year. I, I really enjoy what Square Enix has done with Final Fantasy XIV after the original really bad launch. From A Realm Reborn to Heaven's Word to Stormblood, it's just gotten better and better. And especially this year, you get the feeling that Square Enix is reaching out to veterans and folks from previous games. So we just had a patch that had uh, Evilus returning, which is the world of Final Fantasy XII and Final Fantasy Tactics. And uh, Matsuno helped out with the Evilus, you know, content. So, it, like... FF14 is a game that balances doing new stuff with alluding to past Final Fantasy games across the whole series. And this year they sort of like stepped in and got the resources to bring back some of the creators of that past Final Fantasy content to really give it an authentic feel. Mm, absolutely. I, I see a lot of people say that they just like Final Fantasy fourteen because it's the the MMORPG that feels the most Final Fantasy, I, I suppose. And a lot of that is to do with one of its like major producers who I interviewed way back when they were just like 2013, I think, when they were working on the remaster of Final Fantasy 14. And he was professed to be a huge Final Fantasy 7 fan and kind of reminds me of Enterprise, to be honest. <laughs> because <laughs> did you ever watch Enterprise? I did. I did watch Enterprise. So Enterprise was, was famously kind of a disaster, and it kind of went off in its own directions for the first, like, three seasons. But season four, they fired the producers who brought and brought in a new producer who uh, immediately said, all right, <laughs> screw this, and just immediately starts tying it to the original Trillet series as much as humanly possible and bring, doing things like... so. In the first three seasons, they were doing dumb things like, oh, why are the Borg here? I don't know. I like the Borg. They're kind of cool, right? We, they didn't really know much about the original series. Whereas this guy was like, oh, uh, let's do a two-part Mirror Universe episode that's just really freaking awesome. Let's, uh, let's talk about the founding of the Federation. Let's lay the groundwork for the Romulan War. And yeah, and you're kind of seeing that in Final Fantasy 14, right? Where they just said, you know what? We need to go full freaking tribute to Final Fantasy as soon as possible. And that's what they've been doing ever since. Yeah, no. And I'm, it's interesting the way they weave in doing its own thing with the Final Fantasy references. So Stormblood's uh, main storyline is about liberating a region called Doma. Uh, which is sort of this weird melange of Asian-influenced regions, uh, contrasting with Heavensward, which was definitely more medieval European-based. But one of the main characters is the prince of the region, and his father's name is Lord Kyan, which is Cyan's original name from Final Fantasy VI, and Doma was uh science region and like they don't like go straight out and say aha this is ff6 but if you know the names you're like oh this is science son if you know ff6 was a part of this world yeah uh you know i don't you're the, you're the mmorpg guy on the staff 
Uh, and so you can attest to this. It's not very often that you see people saying that the story of an MMORPG is the best part, is it? It is not often that way. <laughs> Actually, most of the time it's all about in-game and raids and dungeons. And the two MMOs that I jump back and forth between are Final Fantasy XIV and World of Warcraft. Uh, World of Warcraft has gotten better with its story presentation as they've gone on. And in fact, they're really good at uh, bringing across their story now. And I noted that in the review for World of Warcraft Legion that we did last year. But Final Fantasy XIV, since they've started A Realm Reborn, has been on that train as well. So it's it's good for me because I like competition and being able to jump back and forth between two MMOs that tell their stories well uh, is enjoyable for me. What a, what exactly about Final Fantasy fourteen allows it to really succeed in terms of its storytelling versus another MMORPG? Uh, they take time out to bring characters, uh, supporting cast members across over and over again. There are a number of fully voice cutscenes. They work really hard in presentation. So it's part character writing, part presentation. And that's a focus that a number of other MMOs don't always have. Actually, uh, Elder Scrolls Online finally got there with the Morrowind expansion, which also came out this year. Was also finally a very good uh, storytelling RPG, but that was more from a low-level story, like the individual side quest and area stories are good, but there was no big overarching story that they were leading to which is where 14 really works like there are small bits that are important in each area and they're well written and you like the characters but they all funnel towards a specific story which in this point was the liberation of doma and uh, the city of alamigo i gotta say i, I know that you're a long time wow guy but I think Final Fantasy fourteen, just from a graphical standpoint, looks so much better than uh, World of Warcraft. So that makes it a lot easier for me to actually pick it up and play it. Uh, it does. And this is one of those issues that WoW pretty much is stuck with in that they have a player base that they sort of have to carry on since the game came out in 13, 2007. Four. No. 2004. Vanilla so came out in 04, so it's 13 years <laughs> old at this point. Yeah, and they've improved the graphics, but there's only so much they can do because there's a certain baseline of players at the bottom end that they have to keep bringing with them. Whereas A Realm Reborn was able to just say, ah, I'm sorry, this is a whole new game, and if you don't have the graphics for it, we're sorry, that's very sad thing for you well they built it for the ps4 as well right so i mean that just tells you everything you know and they dramatically completely rebuilt it from the ground up the the, the version the original release of final fantasy 14 which feels like a billion years ago at this point it was an utter disaster it was much 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 ug uglier than a realm reborn it was actually pretty remarkable yeah and stormblood actually got rid of so they also <laughs> released the game on ps3 and stormblood got rid of PS3 support for the game, which they said was because of the sort of constraints that they had with building the game that could also fit on that older platform. Yes. 
So uh, I I know that MMORPGs are a little bit of a tough sell to the people who listen to this podcast, probably. Though I, I'm sure that, I mean, we embrace all types here. So I'm sure that there are plenty of MMORPG fans on this podcast. But if I were to recommend one MMORPG to the listening audience of Acts of Blood God, I think it would be Final Fantasy fourteen. Though the, RPG, the MMORPG that I still play is, as always, Star Trek Online. <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, I thought you were going to surprise us. Like, I would recommend Star Trek Online. I wouldn't recommend Star Trek Online, actually, because while it has an absurd amount of solo content and surprisingly fun to play, it is so totally balanced toward buying vanity ships. Really? I, I mean, yeah, I guess that is that is sort of the perfect world cryptic mantra now. Yep. Buy vanity items. But it's not uh, even that they're vanity ships, because they are better than everything else. So you get when you buy them, you get special items on them that make them much power, more powerful, and they tend to have better stats than the vanilla sh- ships that are actually in the game. So there is a unspoken: you better spend twenty dollars on this ship, or else just don't even bother like going on raids. Do the costumes matter? Like nah. that was one thing I liked about Star Trek Online: just the different takes on the Federation style outfit. I just love that stuff. They, t- they still give you a ton of different outfits, but Star Trek Online is still going as well, which is pretty remarkable given that it was really crushed back in 2010. And it was like a ghost town when I went to Cryptic, when I went and visited Cryptic several years ago. <laughs> oh, poor Cryptic. I, I'm, I'm still very sad about Cryptic because I liked Champions Online briefly, but it never really hit. City of Heroes, which is still my gold standard superhero MMO, and NCSoft killed it, and it's very sad because no one else seems to be doing that, and no one else is making MMOs anymore, new MMOs, so. R.I.P. All right, continuing along that track, another RPG that you played, Mike, Divinity Original Sin 2, which you were really into, and I think if I am correct, correct me if I'm wrong, did you name it your game of the year? Was it? Yes. Yes, I believe it was my game of the year. Let me check. <laughs> I'd have to look because it was, it was, it was very fuzzy in my top three. Yeah. And uh, what a lot of people don't realize when we do these lists is sometimes as we're writing them, we will rejigger and switch things around. You call that uh, your I, game I, of the year. Think of, you call it your yeah, personal it was my game, game of the year. year. So uh, it's such a great game. Mm-hmm. It's just such an amazing game. And uh, as I wrote in the blurb for our top 20 list for the entire year, RPGs were sort of patterned on D&D and all of these old original pen and paper RPGs back in the day. Like that's the start of RPGs in video games. And I feel that a lot of times that sort of genesis of you can do anything, like here's a bunch of tools and make your character and go out there and really get into the game, really get into the nuts and bolts and have fun and role play your character is rare. And it's gotten rarer as our games have gotten more graphically intensive with higher presentation Especially in the case of, say, like dialogue systems, the really deep dialogue systems of older PC games sort of run away 
when we started adding voice acting because you have to record all of those lines. And Divinity Original Sin is one of those games that's just like, no, we're, we're still going to go all in. We're going to have a deep dialogue system. We're going to give you all of these tools and all of these ways to create your characters. And they give you interesting ways to interact with the world. And I haven't played a game like that, another game like that this year. Yeah. So. I think that it's a really, it's almost as if they took the Pillars of Eternity and uh, Torment Tides of Numenera and crammed it together into the ideal game. Because Pillars of Eternity, I mean, it has a good story, don't get me wrong, but it is much more combat-focused, and Torment, by its turn, is much more story-focused, and Pillars of Eternity, I think, does ex- both extremely well. I mean, just from the yep. get-go, I think one of the coolest things it does is the, the character creation, right? Where, you, uh, where you're able to either create your own character and just play as you want, or you can choose from a handful of created character like templates that have their own backstories and their own dialogue trees. And I've not really seen an RPG do that. And it's really cool, actually, because it's kind of the best of both worlds. If you want a created character and you want an official backstory, done. Uh, we would call them, a, a they're not called a pre-made, but something to that effect in Dungeons and Dragons, where you have just a pre-made character ready for you to go. And some people like me just want to create their own characters and have their own backstories and whatever. Uh, the fact that they cater to both is really awesome. Yeah, no, it's really nice. And, and the pre-made characters have all of their own hooks. And even your created characters, depending on like which race or, or, or what you choose, they have their own hooks. And they just did an excellent job of having the world react to you. And they did, they did that in Divinity Original Sin 1 as well. But what really pushes this game up is the writing, I think. Like, they went much deeper, because uh, Original Sin 1 sort of established the bedrock. This is the engine. This is how the world will work. This is how combat will work. Original Sin 2 is like, okay, we have the foundation now. What can we build on top of that? And I think that's why it really works. I would, uh, I, I, yeah, it's definitely a, a, a nice leap over the original Original Sin. Um, I really like the battle system. Uh, I, I love all of the different interactions. I, I love the way that things can go horribly wrong if you don't do it right. And they do yeah. all the time. Yeah, uh, it's it does it. It I, I like the turn based aspects of it. It it's very satisfyingly tactical, uh, it, and it's worked. And it was worked on by some of the best uh, RPG designers and writers that you're gonna find. So uh, Divinity Original Sin two, uh, certainly up there. It's very beautiful as well. Yeah, no, it's a it's a gorgeous game, uh, and. You can't always get that feeling across in screenshots because of the way it it sort of deals with the details. Like if you're actually in the world, you can see like the water and the grass, and it's just a very good looking game. Uh, it will occasionally uh, chug at times, just because since the world reacts to things that you and the enemies do, sometimes those reactions can go a bit crazy. And there's actually one section. Uh, where the entire world is essentially fire, and 
you have to kill the enemies before you die from the flames. Or, of course, there are other other ways to get around it. Uh, you know, water spells, stuff like that. Or you can change your buff so fire doesn't hurt you like that. But it's one of those areas where it's just like, oh god, the world is all fire and on some systems it can chug. But otherwise, it's good, beautiful game that runs pretty well on a lot of systems. Now, it is a sequel, but... Correct me if I'm wrong. You don't need to have played the original Divinity Original Sin. You do not. It's a completely new story in the same world, but for the most part, uh, you start from ground A and they explain everything that you need. And there aren't, there isn't much in the way of like full on hooks to the original game. And it has mostly because co- it has co op, which is awesome. Yes, it does. It has full. Split screen co-op, um, and so you can, like, if you're on the same system, you can play split screen with up to four people, but you can also play co-op online and separate and go off and do your own things or kill each other because it's got friendly fire. Um, there's just so many options. And then it has game master mode, which again, like part of that whole pen and paper thing is, Built on the DM and Game Master mode allows one player to craft a story, craft uh, characters and scenarios for other players to enjoy and then actually mess with those scenarios in real time. So you're like, ah, they're they're going through this area that I designed a bit too quickly. Let me put some more monsters in this next room or some traps or anything like that. So it's just another option and I enjoy games that offer more options. And really, Larian, you can tell when they sat down, they were like, what choices, what meaningful choices and options can we give the player? And that's why Divinity Original Sin 2 is my, my game of the year. Uh, which is really impressive, given that this is a year that a new Assassin's Creed came out. It is, yes. Everyone knows I'm the Assassin's Creed guy, and Assassin's Creed usually lands at the top of my list. And Ubisoft did a a great job this year as well when they took a year off to sort of rethink what Assassin's Creed was. And I believe they'll probably take a year off again this year. But Origins is a great game. It's just, it's a great game in a year of great and amazing games. 2017 has just been too strong. I just hope that Divinity Original Sin 2 comes out on consoles sooner rather than later because it, it, uh, it, it a lot. I mean, obviously it's amazing on PC, but I think that you don't need a super high end PC to play it, but it really, you, you need more than like a laptop or something like that. So I, I think it'll help, uh, kind of popularize it a little bit if it can get sound to the ps4 xbox one that kind of thing it should so the vinnie original sin one didn't have controller support that's one of the things that they added for enhanced edition and then they ported enhanced edition to consoles uh divinity original sin 2 starts with controller support so they've already done a lot of the late work to publish on consoles i think it's just a matter of opti- optimization and uh you know making sure that the game works specifically on each console all right so the first five games uh for our five best of 2017 we've had final fantasy 14 Stormblood, and divinity original sin 2 here's another one 
And I think a lot of people might consider this kind of a surprise addition to this list, and that would be Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which, oh man, you know, I, I've just... Mike, have you ever had one of those games where you don't know why you're playing a game, but you just keep playing it? <laughs> like, it just you just keep picking it up because it feels nice to pick it up. You don't really want to put it down. It's easy to get back into. You keep going. Have you, have you experienced that? Uh, I'm trying to think if there are any <laughs> games that were like that this year. But yeah, there are certain games where I'm just like, I'm still playing this. I'm still playing this. I'm not loving it. I'm not hating it. Mm. I'm just like, it's here. And it feels good and it feels right. And I could see I could see that game being that way for you. Yeah. I can totally <laughs> I I don't know. Like I just I am you know, getting further and further into it and it just keeps introducing new systems and that kind of thing. I'm not even that much into the story, but I like the pace of of how things kind of move along. I like the... I, I find the battle system really interesting. I mean, how much Xenoblade Chronicles 2 have you played? Uh, I have only put in maybe 15 hours in total oh, okay. to Xenoblade Chronicles 2. So not a ton. I, I'm definitely early. And a lot of people have said, like, oh, yeah, I've put in, like, 70 to 100 hours. And I'm just, like, looking at that and, like, hand... Uh, head in my hand so i'm i'm a little afraid of it one of those games that is super long are you in chapter three uh yeah no i'm like really in the beginning of the game i'm not to i I believe chapter four or five is where everyone's like oh this is like the halfway point or something like that okay yeah i'm probably just starting to itch inch toward the the halfway point so but uh, no, I don't particularly like the characters, actually, but I do, and a lot of the enemies are kind of dumb, and it's very anime, and I'm not making a good case for this game, but I like the way that it all kind of comes together. Um, I'm the kind of person who can forgive a lot if I really like the battle system, I think, and conversely... If I like the story but don't like the gameplay, it'll actually be a pretty tough sell for me. I think this is one of those games where I don't particularly care for the story or the world, but it's very pretty, especially when you're out in the fields and that kind of thing. I'd say it's a very messy game. Yes. Like, yes. They, they definitely just like, let's take this and this and this mm. and let's put it all together. And there's not necessarily a feeling that they all work together. And you can see that partially uh, within the blades, which are designed by a bunch of different character designers. Like they just reached out to character designers from other companies, other games, and were just like, hey, make us a blade character. And some of them fit and some of them don't. And some of the like issues that people have uh, with maybe some of the otter character designs come down to the fact that these extra character designers are there. It feels a lot to me like an old PS2, PS, like PS2 era RPG, like Wild Arms in that era. And uh, that's unique, I'd say. I, I, I wouldn't insult it that much, but... 
<laughs> I, I think the thing is somebody com- somebody in the comments of maybe the last uh, RPG thing uh, podcast compared it to to an orchestra and that when things are really humming along you feel like you're conducting an orchestra and I, I can kind of understand that and I like the way that the way that the battles progress where you start out and then you start building up your combos and you're watching the little yeah once I finally understood the dang battle tree <laughs> and understood how you're supposed to just progressively level up your attacks and then you eventually get to the point where it hits the maximum strength right is extremely satisfying and and then that moment where you also manage to break the elemental orb and do even more damage and you're doing the the chain combos and ah man there's so much at work there and the fact that you can attach different blades to different characters and you're swapping back and forth between them on the fly uh, it's almost too much but it, at the same time it feels very manageable to me so it's not a huge problem. Uh, and it's the kind of game that I can play while watching Parks and Rec. <laughs> <laughs> it is very complex, and it doesn't help that they don't explain much. Like, that, that is a yeah. game. and no, I, They explain I, I it in t- detail, but they don't really have a, a glossary where they'll kind of run through it again. So... Right. Once you once they explain a concept to you, you better go back on the internet and just double check. Yeah, I I put on Twitter uh, as a question based solely on Xenoblade Chronicles Two. Like, what other games have you played that there were certain mechanics that you just didn't use or didn't know were there? And I got a lot of interesting answers, but the genesis of that question was Xenoblade Chronicles Two and someone talking about like, oh, I totally didn't know that that x system was in there until the game forced me to use it for a boss fight so it's definitely one of those types of games and i have an image saved from that conversation because someone was like here's how xenoblade chronicles 2 battle system works in detail and i bookmarked that (laughs) so when i i'm playing the game i'm like i can look back at that and go oh so the last time we talked about this, I didn't necessarily understand the the battle system, maybe to the point that I did that I needed to. And there were people on the RPG podcast comments who were going, "No, no, you got to do this, 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 and this, and you got to follow the battle tree and everything." And I was like, "Oh, that's what that thing in the corner means," because <laughs> I had no idea what that freaking meant. Yeah, see, and that's the kind of thing you're just like, I'm playing, I'm enjoying myself, but I feel like I'm missing something here. I'm going to make another comparison that it's not going to be flattering, but it reminds me a little bit of Final Fantasy Thirteen, where you, that is the kind of game where you can just, you start, you, you just are initially running through and you're just hacking and slashing and you're thinking, whatever, it's fine, it's cool, I'm doing lots of damage. And then you eventually run into a boss where you can't do that anymore. And then you actually have to grapple with the systems. And then once you figure out the systems, you're like, oh, I'm good. Okay, I'm doing lots of damage now. This is great. And Xenoblade Chronicles yeah. 2 is kind of like that. And by the way, Final Fantasy, people like Final Fantasy XIII's battle systems. So I don't know. Uh, but yeah, what it really comes down to is 
I just find it very relaxing. It's a comfort food RPG, I suppose. And it's very much in the vein of classic JRPGs. It reminds it reminds me of a little bit of those PS2 RPGs, the second tier ones, like, I don't know, Rogue Galaxy, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, and, and uh, another comparison I made for, for an aspect that is annoying that I have since turned off our app. Katie gave me the idea to actually download the Japanese voices. Which I did. It remind, Much better. Right. It reminds me of Star Ocean until the end of time. Mm. And I don't know if you played that for PS2. Oh, I did. But I, I still have nightmares from that game because Cliff had this attack called Sphere of Might. And he would use it like the AI version of Cliff would use it all the time. So in my head, I still have that Sphere of Might <laughs> voice line. And Xenoblade Chronicles 2 does that. This thing where the characters like have canned audio lines for each attack and certain enemies like use the same line over and over again. So you're just like playing and you're just like, oh God, not this line again. <laughs> uh, but you can turn it off. Again, I, I guess Monolith knew this. So you can turn it off and you can also download the uh, Japanese voice pack, which makes it uh, apparently Tolerable. much better according to Katie. Yeah. I wish that it were better on the the handheld, uh, undocked, because it looks so much better when you dock it. But uh, I don't know. I like playing it on handheld. Uh, and the music is so good. Oh, my God. The music in that game is excellent. So, yeah. No, Xenoblade Chronicles 2. I can't hate it. But it, in fact, not <laughs> only can I not hate it, I can like it. And so I have to put it in my top five. What do we? What, I don't know what to do. Like I can't stop playing this stupid game. Yeah, no, it's it's enjoyable. I, I really like it. It's just the the problem I have with it is the same problem I had with The Witcher like mm. two years ago, uh -huh. which is I just look at it and I'm just like, okay, that's like sixty to seventy hours of my life that I have to give it. So I like I start it and then I'm just like, no, I gotta stop. I gotta. I'll play something else for right now. But it feels manageable because yeah. I like I said, I'm watching Parks and Rec and playing it uh, with with the sound off, admittedly, uh, undocked, which isn't as good looking. But I just find the rhythms of the battle system very relaxing. And yeah, no, it's a good game to grind in. Yes, it's a it's a very good game to just sit in a in a field and wander around and grind mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that I felt FF12 Zodiac Age was a good game to grind. I'm playing Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and going, I don't know what's going on. I'm just running through this field. I'm diving. I'm going hunting. I'm grabbing some stuff. Anyway, uh, put, it's in our top five. You should play it. <laughs> best game on the Nintendo... Best RPG on the Nintendo Switch. <laughs> bar none. All right. Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is one... Uh, like, as I was saying this earlier in the podcast, Mike, I thought this would be my game of the year, bar none. And it's still very high up there. Uh, it's in my top 10. I was very impressed uh, impressed by a lot of it. And if anything, I think it feels more relevant than ever. Uh, as the just in the political world that we live in. And that's Persona 5. Um, how much Persona 5 did you play? Probably like 10 hours total. Oh, you didn't play much Persona 5? Yeah. No. No, I never had time. It's it's been on my it's system. Really like, long. I installed it, and I just never got around to playing a ton of it because 
I thought there would be more periods during this year where games would not come out, and that didn't happen. Yeah, there were like two months where games didn't come out, and the rest of the time it was like, busy, busy. Yeah, so uh, I like it. It's beautiful. It's stylish. I like the characters. The Probably the thing that brings it down is it very much a Persona game? Like, yes. uh, not, not bring it down. It's It's straightforward. It is a Persona game. And it is a specific style of RPG that you've played before. And in my case, I had played it sort of last year with Tokyo Mirage Sessions, which very different game was from Tokyo. Persona Light. Yeah, it's a very different game, though, just in terms of the rhythms and everything. So I, I think the thing with Persona 5 is <sighs> it's just not the kind of game that I like to play on console. As in... It's. I really enjoyed playing Persona 4 Golden on my PlayStation Vita, where I could like curled up in bed or curled up on the couch or that kind of thing, and so I really felt like I had to make time Persona for Persona 5, which was a little bit difficult, and just the way that the rhythm of the game is, where you're watching long tracks of static dialogue, and yeah, that is much easier for me to deal with when i have the volume down or whatever and i'm watching parks and rec (laughs) and i'm playing on say my nintendo switch so so for cat the top five is what games can i play while watching parks and rec (laughs) i mean you can't do that with the original sin too but i like rpgs and this goes back to when i used to commute to work in japan um i liked games that were kind of zen and i could be playing with my while listening to a podcast or something and i'm just clicking through through dialogue and it's like yes this dialogue is happening i'm getting the general beats of the story i'm enjoying it but really i'm just messing around with the mechanics i'm messing around with the characters this is where i differ with nadia by the way nadia is all in it for the story she loves a a great story-driven rpg i'm much more I'm just keen on the systems, and that's I think that's why I was drawn in by Xenoblade Chronicles 2, where it's just like, oh, look at all these things to play with. Man, once I get a lot more blades, it's like start. Once you get tons of blades and you're kind of mixing and matching them and figuring out how the elements all work together, that's fun to me. And Persona 5 is very much a very story-driven game. And don't get me wrong, like once I get into the rhythm and I'm like sitting there... And I'm listening to the music with my headphones on and I'm going from day to day and uh, watching how the mystery unfolds and everything. It's like super awesome. But man, I wish you were on the Nintendo Switch, Mike. I want it on the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, and it it should be able to run on a Nintendo Switch. I mean, it came out. A lot of people forgot that uh, Persona 5 came out on PS3 as well. Yes, And it was not appreciably different. Yeah, so it's a game that can run on Nintendo Switch. It's just Atlas isn't moving it for some reason. So, I, like, I wonder if it's a problem same same as Yakuza Studio, where they just like the PlayStation more. I've never quite understood why the Yakuza games are only PlayStation, mm. but so from a nitty gritty uh, a nitty gritty perspective, um, I think that. Persona 5, I, I really like Persona 5's battle system. I, I think that it really 
improve it, it is a nice combination of classic smt and persona 4 and i, I really liked the addition of the guns um I, I thought that the dungeons, for the most part, were far more interesting and far, just far better than what you were going to find in Persona 4. Um, I liked, the the cast was pretty decent. I, I think my favorite was the cat, actually, uh, out of all of them. I liked Morgana a lot. Uh, Morgana, yeah. Yeah, Morgana was pretty great. Um, unfortunately, Persona 5 was hit by some controversies. Uh, one of the big ones, of course, was the localization. There were people who felt that the localization was borderline game-breaking, and they were pointing to mistakes in the script. And the general impression that was given was that Atlas didn't have enough time to give it a second or third pass because it was so big that they were under an enormous crunch to get this thing out the door. And so a lot of hardcore localization people were like, this feels, this reads like a first pass. And lots of really awkward turns of phrases, that that kind of thing. Like maybe more so than usual. At the end of the day, it was very colloquial and they're obviously going for kind of a casual approach with the way that the uh, the, the characters read the lines and everything. I didn't find it wholly distracting. I've certainly heard worse, but I think for a lot of people, Persona 5 has this really amazing story and they wanted to get the gold standard localization that it absolutely deserves. So I can understand the frustration there. Yeah, and it just goes to show how how high our localization bar has come. Yeah, for sure. In the days since uh, the actually really good uh, localization by Woosley of the early Final Fantasy games and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our, our our bar is so high that the scripts need to be perfect. They need to really get across everything. And Persona 5, yeah, you can definitely, if you look at the screenshots that people are passing around, like, oh, I can see what they were going for, or I can see where the error was there, and it just got missed by an editor. It probably, as you said, just needed another edit pass. Uh, people were also um, not too sure what to make, or they were pretty unhappy with some of his portrayal of LGBT folks, uh, kind of portraying gays and lesbians um, in a stereotypical or even predatory manner, which was like deeply unfortunate. But at the same time, you had a crossdresser, a crossdressing individual, or transgender individual. My apologies, um, who is treated as extremely sympathetic. So. You're kind of going both ways. I know that LGBT and uh, the gay and lesbian and transgender are not necessarily the same. Uh, yeah, there's no good way around it. Like, this is very much a lost in translation moment. Um, I know that as a gay woman who was living in Japan, it was not super easy um, over there, um, unfortunately. And... It's too bad that this kind of got reflected in Persona 5. Uh, I think that it could have been a lot worse, but it also could have been a lot better, um, especially for a game that professes to be extremely political. But at the same time, it's rare that you see an RPG or a game in general that is mass market and is not afraid to get political. And this game is very much a rebuke to those in power. It is a... It is a direct reaction to all of the horrible crap that went down after the, the, the earthquake 
in Japan in, uh, I think it was 2010. Uh, and the, the, the nuclear power plant stuff that followed and all of that stuff. And this game is basically saying these people are abusing their power and these heroes are in the game are going out and fighting them and everything and but it is very much a direct critique of a lot of different things and uh, that kind of social commentary is very much welcome i think i, I think that uh fighting those who are in power cuts across both political aisles uh cuts across a political aisle because i think people on the left and the right are very frustrated with those who are kind of in charge like there's a deep 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 frustration uh, going on there to be perfectly honest and uh, I when I was talking to Steve Tramer on the show he was saying that he thought that uh, Persona 5 was maybe a little too focused on Japan but I, I just think that stuff cr- cuts across borders so uh, I think that's the stuff that resonates and I think it resonates more than ever at the end of 2017. And it it looks like they're not leaving that behind because they have said that uh, Shin Megami Tensei Five, which is coming to Switch, is going to be tackling a lot of themes in that same manner, a lot of political and social themes in general, somehow in the middle of post-apocalyptic Tokyo, but whatever. (laughs) Katsuro Hashino expressed surprise that Persona 5 ended up, at the end of the day, uh, kind of being beloved or being highly praised and making its way into Game of the Year awards. I think it won RPG of the Year during the Game Awards, uh, this year's Game Awards. And he said, I'm deeply flattered and honestly surprised at this extremely Japanese game <laughs> about kids going to school in Japan. Uh, ended up winning awards and resonating with people uh, in the West. But uh, I because... It was like a, a political polemic <laughs> uh, that was geared, geared toward Japan, but uh, shows that this stuff is worldwide. So in any case, I, I think that even if it's not a perfect work, that even if it has its flaws, uh, I think that it's just a game that you have to play. I think it is a defining RPG of 2017. Yeah, and it's interesting because I would say that Persona 5, for me, from what I've played, has less flaws than Xenoblade Chronicles 2. <laughs> no kidding. But but Xenoblade Chronicles 2 might be more fun. I, it's it's hard. That's it's a very hard line to to sit between. Only one of those can be played while I'm sitting in an airplane, which I did on the way back from the UK and it was great. I hope that Atlas rectifies that soon. <laughs> I would expect that they would, especially since Shin Megami Tensei Five is currently is it is it actually coming to PS4 as well? No, I think it might just be a Switch, Switch exclusive. exclusive. Yeah, and yeah, you know it's funny how when the Switch was first revealed, like formally revealed, do you remember way back in I think it was February? No, January. It was back in January when they first formally unveiled it and showed the price and everything, and everybody was so uncertain about it i know i was super uncertain about it i was going through my some of my old articles and i was just shaking my head at like how skeptical i was and i was like it's too expensive the battery life's a problem just aren't gonna be enough games for this thing it's gonna be the same old nintendo and 12 months later oh my god it's just like a no-brainer to put your game on the switch if you're anything less than the top 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 tier 
triple a game right i mean especially rpgs correct i mean atlas would be stupid not to put persona 5 onto the switch yeah and especially in japan there's a lot of games game developers and publishers that are sort of operating at what we would say the b tier or the double a tier of games which is you know they don't necessarily have all of the resources of an ea or an ubisoft to throw at the best in class graphics and huge grand worlds. So there's a lot of great Japanese games and publishers that fit really well on the Switch in the same way that for a while a lot of games fit really well on this sort of PS4 Vita release, that split release there. Now it's the PS4 Switch split release. Yeah. All right. Final RPG on this list and this was the game that i ultimately picked as my game of the year and that was near automata which came out and i don't think anybody was expecting it to resonate the way that it ultimately did i i thought it would be a cult favorite i thought that maybe a cult favorite in the vein of near for example uh but i certainly never expected it to have the legs that it ultimately did where people were just really it seemed to resonate again just like a little bit like persona 5 in in a weird way almost overshadowed persona 5 because people stopped talking about persona 5 at a certain point but i feel like people have been talking about near automata the entire year uh yeah there was a lot of fight uh on the internet not fight as in like <laughs> anger and stuff but a lot of fight and and rah-rah to get near automata on game of the year list and i'm some people were worried that it wasn't going to be there. And I I had said before all of the Game Awards and all the Game of the Year discussions started that it was pretty much going to be Nier Automata and Persona 5 as probably the two reigning uh, Japanese RPGs on these Game of the Year lists alongside Super Mario Odyssey and The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild from Nintendo. So... There was a lot of championing, uh, championing getting near Automata on the list, which was weird to me because I just assumed that it was going to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was just like, why is everyone... Which speaks to it, it how much like the, the game has touched people. Well, it feels like Japanese games... People are still acting like, whoa, whoa, Japanese games, they might not be dying anymore. I'm like, dude, I'm looking at my top 10 list and like most of these games are from Japanese developers and or Japanese uh, Japanese franchises, and uh, and they aren't exactly small either. Uh, Persona 5, for example, certainly burst into the mainstream. Uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild came out from a Japanese developer. What, what do you want? But no, I mean, Nier Automata is just... It might be the biggest surprise of the year, because I remember last year, at, not this year's E3, but the year before going and seeing it and being like well near's a cult favorite and i mean it just feels like it's going to be a winner if it's paired with platinum because platinum knows how to make a game uh see metal gear rising which they totally saved um and but i still thought that it was going to be too weird too out there too cult to really grab onto people <laughs> i mean if you ever played dragon card 3 that game is really messed up there's a lot of like 
I mean, pretty much, it, it, it's like a Sailor Moon girl or a Sailor Moon, Sailor Moon, but with like blood and everybody's dying and that kind of thing and psychopaths and it's total, totally, totally freaking nuts. But so uh, the way that Nier Automata just really uh, got picked up by the general public was super surprising to me. But when I finally got around to playing it, I could totally see why. I mean, first of all, it's not the best looking game but it's stylish it it has a a style to it that really stands out in a lot of ways yeah this game could totally be on the ps3 i i don't think there would be any question about that but i think it's a good example of art direction totally trumping a pure technical uh design which is one of the reasons why i cited it and uh i think it was my final starting screen of the year uh no it's a it's a it's definitely like a platinum game with all that the name platinum entails i mean it's very stylish uh, yeah like it's stylish and they do the best they can with the resources they have because platinum is another one of those studios like i was just talking about sort of that b tier like they're good at what they do but they don't necessarily usually have the resources to go all out and uh, you know top tier uh presentation whatnot so what they do is it they take what they have and use it well. And Nier Automata isn't like the best looking game, but it does what it needs to. And especially in some of the boss battles, the sense of scale uh, is just amazing. Yeah, the sense of scale is really great. And I, I think the combat is just satisfying enough. Uh, we were talking about this in a, a previous episode where we it doesn't get in the way. I think it's the main thing that's important. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so a lot of people were sort of, as, as the years going on, sort of down on Nier Thomas's combat. And yes, it does pale in comparison to some other Platinum offerings, or say Devil May Cry, because it's not meant to be as difficult or wholly technical. Uh, and I actually spoke about this on the US Gamer podcast, in that things like, like the dodge is really forgiving in the timing that it allows you. I didn't die all that much in in the parts of Nier Automata that I've played so far. But that's not really what the game is about. Yeah, it's not exactly Bayonetta here. Yeah. Uh, And if Platinum wanted to do that, they could have. But they chose not to because that's not the focus of the game. The game is more about the story and the journey of the characters through this world. Yeah, the existential stuff. That moment where... That moment where you are, that if you screw up and you die in the opening sequence, you will suddenly have, it will suddenly fast forward through the credits uh, and basically say, and everybody lived happily ever after. And you're like, what? (laughs) And then you start over and you're like, okay. And it does weird thing. And it, I I think I said this already on the, on Acts of the Blood God, but it it bears repeating where it says, this game does not autosave. We'll tell you when you can save, and you go, and you just go, yeah, yeah, okay. You know that this game has a very distinct point of view, and it's not going to, it's not going to be a lot like your standard uh, action game and that kind of thing. Um, it has a lot of really striking imagery uh, that still stands out to me. Uh, the first time that you go out into the amusement park, for example. And you're seeing the, 
you're seeing all of the robots dancing around and uh, man, so much weird, but almost creepy things. Is it okay if I compare this to Miyazaki? <laughs> Am I like being uh, blasphemous here? I'd say Yoko Taro has definitely shown that he has a very unique point of view and he has risen to that Artur level. Yeah. Where you can be like, okay, he's up there with, with Kojima. And, and I personally think that he is better than Kojima Ooh. because I haven't necessarily been a fan of the execution of Metal Gear games past a certain point. Whereas I feel Yoko Taro has sort of hit on his spot. Like, yes, this is it. And the execution of the themes and the ideas comes across better than I've sort of gotten from Kojima. It'll be interesting to see what Kojima does with Death Stranding, which, uh, at least from two trailers and makes absolutely no, no sense. No sense whatsoever, but I really liked Metal Gear Solid Five, uh, and I thought that, you know, in many regards, I still thought that he had it. It's just that Kojima is supported by much, 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 much more money than Taro Yoko. <laughs> I would be legitimately curious to see what uh, Taro Yoko could do if he was handed basically unlimited resources, which uh, Kojima was handed with MGS5. Uh, it seems like he's trending that way. I, mm. I think the uh, success of Nier Automata and the continuing uh, praise around it has led Square Enix to be like, okay, well, I mean, why don't we give you more, more to do? And even Yoko Taro said himself like, I'll keep doing stuff as long as they pay me. Like, as long <laughs> as I get a paycheck, I'll do stuff. I do start to worry about whether having him do games sort of in the, towards the Final Fantasy machine style might lessen his impact or maybe tank the work or make it not work as well. But mm. we're not really there to yeah to that being a problem yet. and i also think that the thing with the you know you always have to be a little cautious about assigning all of the credit to one person uh so the guy is gonna have he has a he has uh, a number of lieutenants he'll have teams i think the main thing is he has a very strong vision of what he wants to do and given the resources to actually given the time and the resources to actually make it happen. And I, I think you can end up getting something really special. Uh, I especially love what he did with uh, the endings. Uh, they get increasingly gonzo and very meta as you go along. And I, I think it's the endings ultimately that elevate a lot of what near Tamata is because it forces you to, uh, attack the story from a, a variety of different perspectives and uh, it's just a really interesting piece of art I, I think that at the end of the day breath of the wild might stick in the collective memory longer because just because it's zelda and it's bigger and i i really admire a lot of what nintendo did with that game as well but just from a critical perspective i sort of feel like near automata needs to be recognized and i mean it's kind of like neck and neck, right? And it's certainly one of the two or three best games of 2017. So, I mean, yeah, uh, it's, I would say that compared to the rest of the games on this list, it's RPG elements are a little more slight. Um, I mean, you're still customizing your character and everything, and it's not what I would call a pure straight action game by any means. Because as you said, 
as as we were just talking about the action stuff definitely take a, takes a backseat to uh to the story and and to that sort of thing and there's like a strong customization element and everything and you have a very strong sense of playing the main role but yeah uh i don't know so there you go uh any final thoughts mike no no final thoughts uh this uh near automata almost squeaked on my list in number 10 but uh resident evil 7 ended up taking it it was like that and a couple of other games were sort of rotating in my number 10 slot and in the end i was kind of like ah i'll go with I'll go with Resident Evil 7, since I figured everyone else would give Nier Automata its props. <laughs> so why didn't you put it uh, higher, Mike? Uh, I mean, like I always said, it was a, a big year, and to be honest, what ended up happening was Nier Automata was, didn't get as much of a playtime as some other games and so i wasn't necessarily 100 percent confident that i thought it would be higher for me mm-hmm. like i liked what i played and i could see where it was going but i was just like i don't know if this is my top 10 and in the end i ended up deciding that resident evil 7 just from a game perspective like i beat resident evil 7 i tore through the dlc and i played the entire game in playstation vr that was sort of the vr game that actually worked for me this year so that's what earned it that last spot as opposed to mm. near automata and i think as you you pointed out the endings make it what it is and i haven't had many of them so you put yakuza zero pretty high oh i love yakuza zero yeah that that i, I came to yakuza as a convert this year and it just, both Kiwami and Yakuza Zero were just like, wow, I didn't realize <laughs> these, these games were out here. Why didn't anyone tell me what exactly these are? Because I skipped, uh, most of them because I thought it was like a Japanese GTA, hmm. like cheap Japanese GTA, which it is it not. It is nothing it is like very... GTA. It was just, nope. It was marketed as such back in the day because people are stupid. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Yakuza, I just love the games. And I think Yakuza, probably if this had been my third or fourth Yakuza game, probably wouldn't have been as high as it was on the list. But since this was my first year of Yakuza, because from the games that I have played, they're very same from game to game in the, in the same way we were just talking about Persona. Yakuza is, you know, mostly it's a Yakuza game. We're changing the story up. We're changing maybe the mini games and the location slightly. But for the most part, each game is still a Yakuza game, 100% straightforward. And I think if I had started on three or four, maybe Yakuza Zero might not have been that high on the list, but it just blew me away this year. And we could probably. It's a matter of time. Maybe we should switch uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 for Yakuza Zero. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Like, Zakuza Zero has always been on that kind of weird area. Like, it's hard to call it an RPG, per se. Uh, it's kind of a weird game where you're going through a story. It's, it's almost like a visual novel with some exploration elements. And also, you beat people up. Right. Lots of beating. Like, it's it's partially a beat-em-up. And it's partially a visual novel. And it has a whole bunch of mini-games. 
And you do have gear that you can equip, but eh, I wow it. See now that you're saying that now I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call it an RPG. Yeah, it's totally insane. It's close. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's close. I, I mean, it's yeah. No, it's not an RPG, but it it certainly has merit, and I'm really glad that a lot of people kind of came to understood that it, it's an inherent appeal. And a lot of these games that you just feel like deserve a lot more time and a lot more attention, like Nier Automata and Yakuza 0 are finally getting their just due, I think. Yeah, I, I, I believe we've sort of come to this this crossroads. It's not that Japanese games haven't been important. Of course, they've been a huge part. But I think they're starting to bleed a little bit more into the mainstream. And I mm. think that's partially because of uh, pop culture and streaming uh, infrastructure allowing a lot of products from those regions to reach more people i also think it's because a lot more people own the ps4 than they did the ps3 and as a consequence so the xbox 360 was dominant uh was the dominant console of last generation for the most part it 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 seemed like everybody had one and as a con and japan was definitely kind of struggling right and so it wasn't until late in the generation that a lot of the better games started to come out on the PS3. It took forever for Yakuza 3 to get translated. It took forever for Yakuza 4 to get translated. So Yeah, that is true. So as a consequence, it wasn't until, I don't know, like 20, 2012, that kind of thing, that people started to... That, that these good Japanese games started to kind of coalesce on the Nintendo or on the PS3. Otherwise, a lot of these best games were on like, you know, the Nintendo DS, right? Which automatically made them, despite the fact that the DS was an extremely top seller, people didn't take put it in the same vein as, say, a, a home console. Though this generation, PS4, right? And yeah, all these games PS4. are on PS4. Yeah. Uh, and not only are the PS4, it's also, we've sort of reached a point where localization is like a given. Yeah. Like Spike Chunsoft just started a North American office to handle their own localization. So these days when a Japanese game comes out, now it's not like, are we going to get that? It's when are we going to get that? There was a period where it was not a given. Uh, like for a while, like every Japanese game came out, especially during the PS2 era. And then after that, it was not it a given. Stopped. It definitely yeah. stopped. But between Steam, the PS4, the Switch now, it just feels like a, it's a given again that it's going to come out over here, which is really, really nice. Um, I do have one quick bone to pick with you before we move on. Mike, come on. Horizon Zero Dawn is not nearly as good as freaking Nier Automata. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Let me Let me go with this. Again, I have not played enough of Nier Automata to really get the feel of it. Whereas Horizon Zero Dawn really impressed me, not just from a presentation standpoint, but from also a gameplay standpoint. And I pointed out before, I've sort of dipped into sort of the Monster Hunter series here and there, and it's never worked for me. It's never really gelled for me at all. And... I was actually probably Monster Hunter World was going to be my my foray with Bob. I was going to have Bob take me through and show me uh, how Monster Hunter works. But I feel Horizon Zero Dawn was the sort of game that hit and it said, 
like we like monster hunter but let's try to bring this to the average player and that wasn't just the world that wasn't just the presentation but also the sort of mechanics that they chose to bring across and probably a similar experience was mario rabbids on switch which brought over XCOM mechanics but streamlined them at the same time uh, which created like a, a really good game and i really enjoyed mario rabbids as well so for me this was partially not just the game itself and i really liked the game but the fact that it opened up another world for me in the same way that i just said with yakuza 0 if i were say a monster hunter player i don't think horizon zero dawn would have hit me as well as it did well it was definitely in your wheelhouse because you're the kind of person who likes those uh open world games i do i do i i get and a lot of people don't sort of realize that uh i get sort of in the weeds on open world games and i will block off a section of the world and finish everything in that section and then move on to the next section and i sort of like the mechanical feel of that mm -hmm. whereas for some people i understand that that can be a thing that gets rote to them like oh i'm doing the same thing i'm tired of doing the same thing and it's similar to the way you were talking about xenoblade chronicles where you're just like i'm just playing the game i'm getting into the mechanics uh, story okay i was actually kind of surprised every time i saw Horizon Zero Dawn, we were looking at the Game Awards, and I remember saying this in Slack. I'm like, why is Horizon Zero Dawn under best narrative? Because I didn't think it... Ne I, I don't understand how it got there. Yeah. I mean, it, I, um, I don't know. I, I don't think there's anything particularly special about Horizon Zero Dawn outside of the fact that it's a very pretty game. But I... Uh, I don't know. I, I guess that maybe I'm being too dismissive of it or any, or something but i have a hard time getting into a lot of open world games because as you said they do feel very rote and i don't feel like any sense of engagement in the actual game and i think this gets back to kind of what we were talking about with divinity original sin too i'm the kind of person who really likes to have my own character that i have created from scratch and I think that's one of the reasons that I've always been able to get super into Fallout 4 or Skyrim or whatever. Because I don't care that they're not good RPGs. I do not care that they're super buggy. I care that I feel like I am part of this world. When I'm playing GTA, I don't feel like I'm part of this world. I don't feel like I, I feel completely separate from it, if anything. And that lack of engagement just ultimately makes it feel extremely boring to me. So, and... Ultimately, Horizon Zero Dawn was kind of the same thing. It's, it's a reason that I, I've even had some trouble getting into uh, Witcher 3. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. Uh, and I was actually kind of uh, not necessarily surprised. Like, I kind of, I, as the reviews editor, sort of have a good feel for what we on the team enjoy. And I can see why Horizon Zero Dawn didn't resonate with other people. Uh -huh. um, I was sort of surprised from the other side like and and i spent a lot of time in forums like uh, reset era and on reddit looking to see what people say about games and i was surprised to see how emphatic and uh touched people were by horizon mm -hmm. just from just a straight up 
point of the game. And I don't necessarily think it is as uh, high up on people's list, because a lot of people, I, I, I guess, think it's their favorite game of the year. But I did see something in it that I... I, I think that it really helps that it was a new IP. It was a very beautiful game. It uh, was competently executed. It, it was a competently executed game that brought in a lot of the kind of the Witcher 3 elements of the side quests and that kind of thing while, that, while also matching them with Ubisoft, but maybe with a little bit of that, less of that Ubisoft jank, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and people really got into the post-apocalyptic slash kind of tribal world and they the main character i don't think that she was anything particularly special and if there and if there was one site that i found so annoying this year it was a bunch of white dudes sitting on a couch at sony telling me about how important aloy is to women but that's a whole different ball of wax she was she was a fine character but she spoke to she clearly spoke to other people um and maybe her journey, maybe the fact that she was an outsider, uh, she was in this beautiful and beautifully re- realized world, um, and that is why it uh, kind of touched people. I, I, I have a one of my best friends is like super into Horizon Zero Dawn, and she's just like, I really like it. What do you want? I'm like, okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and, and and like I said, that's one of the things that was was really like I understand why why our team like members on our team and others didn't enjoy it, but I ended up coming back and looking and was surprised at how many people like really loved it. And I was kind of mystified for a while until I played it and I didn't like really love it. I don't think it was like the top, but I thought it was good enough and it opened that world for me. Uh, the Monster Hunter world to the point that when I played Monster Hunter World, the beta, I was like, oh, okay, see, I I, I understand this now. I, like, I understand where this is. I think my problem is that I play RPGs, and so I'm just naturally inclined to see games as mechanical constructs. And I can't lose myself in a world in the same way that people can, uh, other people can, right? Like, I can't just completely suspend my disbelief and throw myself into this game. I'm sitting here thinking about all the different systems and how they come together. See, I think, but I think what Horizon, I think Horizon systems work well. It's just a matter of wanting that hunt aspect. Because where Horizon works is mostly in the, okay, I'm going to hunt this specific uh, beast or monster or whatever uh, they're, they're called. And so I need this specific style trap. Okay, I'm going to run up and and set the trap here and here, and I'm going to map out this vantage point, and when it comes back through this, this trap, then I'll jump down, I'll step. And especially once you start getting into the harder monsters uh, later in the game, like that's when it really starts ramping up, and I think the mechanics of the game shine through. I felt like I was using the same uh, tactics for a good chunk of the game, right? And uh, you know, one of my overriding memories was setting up shop outside a bandit camp and just watching them come out and hit my traps and everything, and shooting them from afar with a bow. People always complain about HCD uh, being pretty rote with this bow, and and the bow is the main weapon 
of Horizon Zero Dawn. Sorry, everybody talks about Skyrim being rote and forcing you into the bow, and the bow is the main weapon of HCD, but it was just like, uh, it wasn't particularly interesting to me. Uh, I, I, I liked capturing the robots. Uh, that, that, was, uh, that was interesting, but I think one of the problems with the robots was that there was one specific way to kill each one, and there wasn't always a ton of variety in fighting the different robots, and so you end up using a lot of the same tactics more than I would like. Uh, you, when you're fighting the bandits, you're using the traps and you're using, a, you're doing, you're setting up traps and that kind of thing. But uh, even that wasn't particularly interesting to me. I don't know. Horizon Zero Dawn. Eh, I, I know that a lot of people really like it, and I've said my piece about it. But in any case, uh, okay. I thought that you liked it a lot more than you did, given that you put it on your top eight, top ten list. No, I mean, I, really, I like I said. I, uh, part of that is I, I I really like the game and I'm I'm actually still playing it because um, uh, I really have this sort of odd completion mindset when it comes to open world games. Sure. But uh, like I said, it's like Yakuza Zero that I really liked it. But part of the reason it ended up on the list as high as it did was because uh, it sort of opened a new thing for me, and I I I prize that like oh okay this is the first game that does this or this is the first game that showed me why this is a thing that people really enjoy and and i i, I kind of like that <laughs> all right well we're not going to do the listener emails this week uh because i, I think we're going to save them a lot of them are final fantasy 9 related so i kind of want to save them for the beginning of the year episode but when Nadia gets back and we do our big Final Fantasy IX wrap-up. Oh my god, Mike, we're going to have so much to cover. It's going to be like a three-hour episode to begin the year, but in any case. Axel Bloodgod is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Uh, follow us on all of the social medias. I'm on Twitter at the underscore cap app. But Mike is on Twitter at Automatic Zen, and of course you should follow us on all of the US Gamer stuff. That would be US Gamer Net on all of the different things. We stream every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, Katie and Mike have finally drawn me into the magical world of PUBG. And PUBG! I think uh, the best moment today was when we were just sitting on the edge of a rock, kind of talking and everything. And then Mike's head exploded. Yeah, that's pretty much how that went. I was just like, oh, everything's great. We're all chilling. And we were talking about how you can just chill and relax. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I took two shots to the head and fell down. Yep. And then Cat died right after me. Yep. It's because we let somebody else set up shot on the rocks across from us. Yeah, no. I mean, sometimes the games work out like that. It's I'm, That's another game that I'm just like, oh, this sort of opened a world for me. And uh, it's so good. It's so good. If you want to hear Mike and Katie and Nadia talk about the other RP, uh, the, the other non-RPG related games that they enjoyed this year, you should talk about listen to US Gamer Podcast, which is also on iTunes and such. Uh, I suggest that you subscribe to that one. Um, it's good stuff. And uh, we post that one every Wednesday. Uh, both podcasts will be off next week. We're on vacation. We will not be here. So, but... As always, thank you for supporting Acts of the Blood God uh, as we are heading into its third year um, as a podcast. We started this in 2015, um, and I just I really appreciate all of your very positive feedback, um, and you should leave us a review if you are enjoying the podcast. 
Um, but until 2018, for Mike and myself, thanks for listening. And until next time, happy adventuring. <laughs>